great. Thank you very much. Um, Peter and Maureen. I was going to say Bob and Maureen then, but Peter and Maureen uh, for those two readings. That's great. Well, um, every now and again, um, what I read for pleasure intersects with um, what I read to prepare for something like this. And this happened very recently as I read these words. A usually mild-mannered, placid member of our Bible study group blew a fuse the other week when we were discussing the story of David's last days in 1 Kings, which describes the ineptitude of those last days in failing to take action about who should succeed him and relates the way he encouraged Solomon to kill various people against whom David had a grudge, even while exhorting him to live in obedience to God. She was indignant that she had been brought up to revere David as the man after God's heart and that the ambiguity of his character had been hidden from her. And that is exactly the issue that we've been looking to address over recent weeks. This thought uh, during our theme of work in progress, works in progress, that these people that we sometimes hold up as heroes of the Old Testament or the New Testament are flawed characters like you and me. They are works in progress. They weren't perfect. There were inconsistencies of character in them, just as there are in us. Um, and this morning, we're going to be looking at David, who, for me, epitom epitomizes um, someone who loved God, but his life was just full of so many inconsistencies. But before we do, I want to share three stories from my driving youth. Helen's just covered her eyes. I'm proud to say that Helen taught me to drive. I think she deserves a round of applause, really, for that. Yeah. She, she did a very good job of it, on the whole. Um, there was one occasion that was a bit hair-raising. Um, so this was pretty much my first lesson, I think. You know, I'd learned to start the car. First gear, we're off. Hey, this is good. Second gear, wow. Third gear, it's easy, this driving lark, isn't it? We're up to fourth. I don't know, we're doing maybe 25, 30 miles an hour. And there ahead of me is a roundabout. And I'd learnt to change up, but I hadn't learnt to change down. Now, happily, it was a mini roundabout. Um, and happily, no one was coming from the left or the right. And we just went straight over. And uh, the rest is a bit of a blur, to be honest. I imagine we came to a very sudden, very sudden stop and stalled the car. Um, but that's my first memory of lear learning to drive, that you need to learn not just to go up the gears, but also to go down the gears. So that was memory number one, story number one. Story number two takes place in Cornwall, which is where um, I grew up. So uh, my youth leader lived just around the corner, and he very kindly, on one occasion, offered to uh, um, let me go around in his car to learn a bit about driving. And pretty much everything went absolutely fine. You know, the driving session was probably flawless. Um, but as we were coming to his home, his, his drive, there were two solid Cornish walls either side of his drive, and inconveniently, his drive was at a 90-degree angle to the road. And um, I turned right, shall we say, and... Well, the wall and the car door became intimately acquainted for a few seconds. Um, and I think that was the last time my youth leader took me out in his car. But anyway, he forgave me. 
And then finally, story number three, also in Cornwall, I think. Now, I can't remember if I'd passed my test at this point. Possibly. But we were driving along this narrow Cornish road, and there ahead was a, a little bridge. And I think Helen must have seen a glint in my eye, because um, it was clear there was nothing coming in the other direction. So I did the thing you're not supposed to do when you're approaching a bridge, is I put the foot down a bit. And the front wheels took off, and the back wheels took off. It was like something out of a movie, and um, happily, we lived to tell the tale. Now, if that was all you had to go on from my driving youth, you might never want to uh, be in a car with me when I'm driving. I'd, I'd understand that. But the point is this. Those three standout incidents for me stand out because they were exceptional. I've actually driven thousands of miles without incident, uh, and for that very reason, I can't remember a single thing about them. But those three things do stand out because they were exceptional, they were unusual. So you would need to be careful not to judge me and my driving on the basis of those three exceptional incidents. And the point of all this is, of course, that we must be careful not to judge David on the basis of the exceptional incidents that characterize his life. You know, he had loads more than most. His story is told in much more detail than um, most characters in the Bible. And he has some standout good stories, and he has some standout bad ones. And they reveal this person of inconsistency of character and behavior. Apparently, one minute, faithful and devoted and passionate to God, and then the next minute, failing spectacularly. And we must be careful not to judge him on the basis of those extremes. Two reasons, I think. Firstly, because we know more about David's everyday life than we do um, than for most people in the Bible. And then secondly, because there is, the Bible pronounces a verdict on David's life which any one of us would be delighted to hear at the end of our lives. And so what I take from all of this is that David's inconsistent life offers hope to every one of us. There is hope for him, there is hope for us. Let's see why. And let's start with... Um, some of his inconsistencies. So this is just a very quick scan over 40 chapters of 1 and 2 Samuel. So we have um, Samuel anointing David as king, 1 Samuel 16, passing over his seven elder brothers because we're told the Lord looks at the heart. Chapter 17, David shows incredible faith, courage and passion for God's name in slaying um, the giant Goliath against impossible odds. A bit later on, the story of him lying to Ahimelech the priest, pretending to be mad before Achash, king of Gath, uh, both out of fear for his life. Throughout 1 Samuel, we have uh, repeated attempts on his life uh, by the jealous Saul, and yet David is loyal to God's anointed king and says he will not raise a hand against God's anointed. Chapter 25, a woman's intervention prevents David going on a murder spree. Chapter 30, we have an example of his generosity. He insists um, 
in the face of some kind of angry uh, soldiers that the plunder should be shared with everyone, not just those who've done the fighting. He disregards the opinions of others in chapter um, 2 Samuel now, 2 Samuel 6, as he worships God with all his heart. He shows faithfulness towards Saul's family, despite how badly he was treated by Saul, chapter 9. In probably the most famous story about David, he commits adultery and sends one of his best men to death in chapter 11. Chapter 12, he's confronted by Nathan in that parable that we heard read to us. And he's stung to the heart. And he repents from his heart. And that's expressed uh, ultimately in Psalm 51. That was also read for us. Chapters 13 and 15, we have some examples of his dreadful parenting. Chapter 22, an example of a song of praise that he wrote. And in chapter 24, uh, in his arrogance, he takes a census of the army and brings God's judgment on the nation. That's just a kind of whistle-stop tour of some of the highs and the lows of David's life. He was a man of incredible inconsistencies. Great highs, but also great lows. But we must be careful not to judge him on the basis of those standout incidents alone. The first reason is this, that God's verdict was that he was a man after God's heart. So Israel's first king was Saul. And 1 Samuel describes how Saul, on one occasion, deliberately disobeyed God and expressed command not to offer up sacrifices to God until the prophet Samuel had arrived. Uh, but instead, he took it upon himself to make this offering, and Samuel rebukes him for his disobedience. Samuel says to Saul, You haven't kept the command of the Lord your God. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. And this is the bit that we are particularly interested in. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. That's 1 Samuel 13. So God had identified Saul's replacement. Then we, actually, then we come to uh, the anointing of David himself. Um, so seven other sons are presented to Samuel for Samuel's blessing. Uh, and Samuel's looking at them and thinking, one of them's here. One of, you know, one of God's anointed is standing before me. Um, and the Lord says to him, it's not that one. No, it's not that one. It's not that one. He says, the Lord doesn't look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So seven sons are passed over by the Lord, and the eighth one who's out looking after the sheep in the field is the one that God chooses because God looks at the heart. He says to Samuel, he is the one. And then finally, um, 3,000 years later or so, the Apostle Paul, preaching in Pisidian Antioch, would say this, I have, he's quoting the story, I found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. So three testimonies that God looks for and found in David a man after his own heart. But what does that mean? What does it mean to be a person after God's heart? 
Well, writers and preachers have suggested many things over the years. Just barely see that, I think. Um, So some say, well, he was wholehearted in his devotion. And they'll refer back to that story in 2 Samuel 6 where despite the apparent embarrassment, he dances with all his might before the Lord. He was wholehearted. He doesn't care what people think about him. It's him and the Lord. That's all that matters. He was wholehearted. Some people say that's what it's about. Some people say that he was tender-hearted. So they'll refer back to the incident with, with Bathsheba, and they'll say that you know, after God had spoken to him, he was, he was crushed in his spirit. He was mortified by what he had done. Uh, and he repented and wrote that psalm that was read to us. He was genuinely sorry. He was tender-hearted. And then some people would say, well, he was kind-hearted. Look at, look at how he dealt with uh, Saul's grandson, the generosity he showed to that family after the appalling way he'd been treated or his generosity to um, the soldiers who didn't take part in, in, in the fighting, but ensuring that they shared the, sp- the spoils of war. He was a, a kind-hearted person. And all of those things may have a bearing, but it seems to me that the key to them all is the verses that speak of a man after God's heart. And so we have... This one here, why, why wasn't Saul a man after God's heart? What was it about him that marked him out as a man not after God's heart? The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, 1 Samuel 13, because you have not kept the Lord's command. And then why was David a, man's after, a man after God's heart? Acts 13, I found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. So surely the clue is in those verses. It was Saul's disobedience that disqualified him, and it was David's obedience that qualified him. That's what it means to be a person after God's heart. Now, does it mean David was always obedient? Obviously not. It's clear from the scriptures that he wasn't. We've seen that. It can't patently be true. He made huge mistakes. But the bottom line is, his heart was one that leant towards obedience and not away from it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, wrote, Only he who believes is obedient, and only he who is obedient believes. David proved himself to be a man of real faith by his obedience. And then we have the everyday David. And I think nowhere is David's heart for God more evident than in the Psalms that he wrote. Psalm 119 in particular is this psalm of praise to God for his word. Here's just a taster from the first eight verses. Blessed are those whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his statutes and seek him with all their heart. They do no wrong, but follow his ways. You've laid down precepts that are to be fully obeyed. Oh, that my ways were steadfast in obeying your decrees. Then I would not be put to shame when I consider all your commands. I will praise you with an upright heart as I learn your righteous laws. I will obey your decrees. Do not utterly forsake me. 
So from just those eight verses alone, this picture emerges of a man who wanted to keep God's law. He wanted to follow God's ways. He wanted to seek God with all his heart. He wanted to be fully obedient to his word. His prayer was that he would be someone who was obedient to God's word. He wanted to learn it. He wanted to put it into practice. And if you read the remaining 168 verses of that psalm, that is the message that you get again and again. Here is someone who wanted to know what God wanted so that he could put it into practice, so that he could obey. He gets to the heart, David does, of what it means to be a work in progress. He's far from perfect, but his heart leans towards obedience. He's a learner. He's an Old Testament disciple. He's a learner. He's not there yet, but he wants to be a follower of God and his ways. David would have identified with a guy called Anthony Placardos. Anthony was 35 years old. He was a truck driver. Um, His family were Greek. Didn't really have much schooling, much education. Left school as soon as he could and um, eventually ended up driving trucks. He was converted and he found himself a um, King James version of the Bible. In the first year of his life, he read it through three times. He was desperate to know about the God um, that he'd come to believe in. And Mary, his wife, was interested, but frankly bewildered by some of the things that he was reading and saying. And Mary's background was one of, you know, religion is about answers and structure and that kind of thing. And she found his faith a little bit overpowering. And so Anthony would would invite his pastor into their trailer home, which apparently was adorned with lots of posters of Elvis Presley. And uh, his pastor would sit down with him and with Mary, and Mary would ask her questions, uh, and his pastor would answer them. And on one occasion, um, his pastor was trying to explain to Mary um, about parables and what the parables were all about. And she just wasn't getting it. The pastor wasn't getting through. Whatever he was saying wasn't landing. And then, apparently, Anthony interrupted the pastor and said, Mary, you've got to live them. Then you'll understand them. You can't figure them out from the outside. You've got to get inside them or let them get inside you. And King David would have loved that. King David would have loved that. You've got to get inside the Word of God. You've got to let the Word of God get inside of you. That's how you understand it. That's how you come to love it. That's how you come to obey it. He would, King David would have loved Anthony, and he would have loved his pastor, Eugene Peterson, who spent hours, days, years, poring over the Hebrew and Greek uh, of the Old and New Testament in order to translate it into Um, a form that could be readily understood by anyone, which we now know as the message translation of the Bible. David would have loved Eugene Peterson too, someone who just loved the word of God and wanted to obey it. That was David. He loved the word of God. He wanted to obey it. And as a poet, he wanted to express his love for the word of God. Someone has said that Finding the perfect balance of grammar 
simplicity, intricacy, feeling, imagery and rhythm is one of the most difficult challenges that a poet will face. In some cases, a poet's work might never be done. For example, he might spend several years or even his entire life trying to perfect one single poem. And it occurs to me that you can sin in a moment, but you can't write a poem in a moment. Not a good one, anyway. Not one that's going to become part of um, a religious community. Not one that's going to inspire men and women 3,000 years later. You can't just write that off, off the top of your head. It comes from a heart that is, is, is saturated in thinking about, meditating about God and wanting to serve him. The Lord is my shepherd. As just one example, Psalm 23. That psalm doesn't get written in a moment. That psalm is the product of someone who's been thinking about God and reflecting on his ways. And so that's why I think that in some ways... His poetry, David's psalms, tell us as much about his everyday life as the narrative in 1 and 2 Kings because they really communicate his heart. They communicate the things that he spent his days and his, his life reflecting on. So, David the inconsistent, absolutely. David the man who committed inexcusable acts against God and others, Yes, yes, he was. He, he is that man. But ultimately, David, the man after God's heart, who pondered God's word, who pondered God's ways, who mourned for his sins, and he expressed his heart in so many ways, including the Psalms that continue to help and inspire us all these, all these years later. And that, I think, should give us tremendous hope. Because is there anyone in this room who is not inconsistent? Is there anyone in this room who doesn't slip up from time to time? Is there anyone in this room who has reached perfection? I seriously doubt it, and even if you put your hand up, I won't believe you. We are all works in progress, and that's what this series has been about. If David could find grace and mercy from God despite his huge consistencies, then so can you, and so can I. If Moses, who was reluctant to do what God asked of him, could find God's favour, that's how he began this series, then so can you, so can I. If Abraham's wife, Sarah, could hear God's word of approval, even though she sometimes broke out in angry spiteful language, then so can we. If Elijah can be restored after wanting to throw in the towel and die, giving up on God, giving up on his faith, so to speak, then so can we. We can be restored. If Miriam, Moses' sister, can be held in honour in the scriptures despite her envious criticisms of her brother, then so can we. We too can find grace and forgiveness. So from all of this series, this is, what I, this is what I kind of take from it, that God loves works in progress. God loves people like you and me who, who make mistakes, who are still on the road to being become more, becoming more like Jesus. He loves to forgive us. 
He loves to restore us. May we respond to this gracious God, this gracious invitation by committing once again to being his imperfect followers. Amen.